Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's a little hard to believe the headlines about the performance at Wall Street's biggest banks. So revenue, 29.9 billion. Forecast, 28.3. Nice beat there. This is like the good old days. 968 versus 557 for Goldman Sachs. Revenue, 10.7. Uh, eight. Their uh, fixed income commodities and currencies trading uh, was pretty strong, uh, up 18% year over year. At a time when millions of Americans are out of work, many small businesses have closed, and hundreds of thousands of people have died from COVID-19, the world's biggest banks continue to beat revenue expectations again and again. Revenue 17.3 billion, the forecast 17.16. The fee income did beat expectations. That came in at 16.8 billion. Thanks to an equity market rally and support from the Federal Reserve, it seems like this part of the economy is functioning in an alternate reality. Global wealth management, which of course is such a core driver for Morgan Stanley now, 4.6 billion. The forecast is 4.5 billion. Fantastic print to either way. James Gorman, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, recently used the word nirvana when he was talking to me about the conditions that the business was trading in earlier this year. This is Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keane. In this episode, how the reforms put in place after the 2008 financial crisis helped one Wall Street bank turn a big profit in the pandemic, and whether that trend is expected to last. In March, as the health crisis trickled into the economy, equity markets tumbled. A lot of people were worried about another potential crisis, one that would hit the financial system. The issue was, what's going to happen to these businesses who aren't getting in any income, what's going to happen to these people who aren't getting paid because their businesses are shut? And how are they going to be able to pay their loans? They're not going to want new loans. Laura Noonan is the U.S. banking editor for the FT. The main issue was around, is there going to be a mass wave of defaults because people can't pay loans? And then also, where is new demand for credit, for credit that you actually want to grant? Where is that going to come from? But then the Federal Reserve stepped in. Today, the Federal Reserve took a number of actions to support American families and business and the economy overall and to promote the flow of credit as we weather disruptions caused by the coronavirus. What the Fed did quite early was they basically put a floor under funding markets and said, we're going to fund indefinitely and we're going to refund some of these contingency loans the banks draw down. So it all got resolved very quickly. The Fed cut interest rates, they bought bonds and other securities in what they said would be unlimited amounts. They also made it easier for banks to lend. As the Federal Reserve came in and they put in a lot of liquidity into the market, that meant that there was effectively a floor under a lot of the markets. So banks always had someone to sell to, and that was supportive of them because they maintained some inventory and the value of that inventory was basically propped up by what the Fed had done. And while the outbreak was at its worst in places like northern Italy, the UK, and in New York, financial markets stabilized and in some cases actually traded up. The Fed was putting extra liquidity in. So the fears that they were 
in terms of liquidity, they dissipated pretty quickly. It also meant that there was a lot of activity, just a lot of buying and selling. And a lot of buying and selling means profit for the banks. It means money for the banks because banks basically get a cut from most of the buying and selling. Think of it this way. The Fed was buying and selling assets with its own interventions, but then investors were also buying and selling. They were basically taking bets on what the Fed was likely to do next and what that would mean for their portfolios. And when you take all of this buying and selling, together you get market volatility. There was so much uncertainty and there was so much official sector action by the Federal Reserve that that also drove other investors to trade more. The absolute level of activity in a market is the single biggest determinant of how the trading arms are going to do, because the trading arms don't take on a whole lot of their own risk anymore. So it's more about the level of activity than it is about the value of the markets. And that activity translated into record quarterly earnings in fixed income trading in the second quarter. It gave several banks a good footing for the year. Morgan Stanley had a very good year. To give you a very brief history lesson, Morgan Stanley was the corporate bank spun off from J.P. Morgan after the stock market crash of 1929. The Glass-Steagall Act, enacted a few years after the crash, required a church and state separation between banks that dabbled in high finance and those that dealt with household deposits, all so that speculators weren't playing with someone's savings. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York stock exchange and market prices. But by the late 90s, after decades of bankers lobbying in Washington, Glass-Steagall was ultimately repealed. Fast forward to 2007, and Wall Street had settled into another risky trading model. The likes of like Lehman Brothers, Goldman Sachs, um, Morgan Stanley and Bear Stearns, they made a lot of their money from proprietary trading. That was effectively taking bets with the firm's own capital. So they would take a bet on how they thought interest rates were going to go, how they thought oil prices were going to go, how they thought a certain equity company would go. And they would basically put the firm's own money into that. And if it did well, they'd make a lot. And if it didn't, they would lose a lot. Then the financial crisis hit and this part of the business unraveled. So I think it's effectively an existential crisis for the Wall Street banks. I mean, if you talk to people who were there at the time, who were at Goldman Sachs, who were at Morgan Stanley, there was a time when they really thought they would go out of business. And if they didn't act very quickly, and if they didn't change their business a whole lot, they worried about things like, will we be able to keep trading next week? I think it was the biggest challenge that these banks have ever faced, possibly the biggest challenge these banks will ever face, because the very way that they made money came under a massive threat and they saw their rivals fail. I mean, it's a very sobering thing to be sitting in Morgan Stanley and watch Lehman Brothers collapse. It's hard to see that and not think there were for the grace of God go us. Lawmakers in D.C. introduced legislation to try to reform the institutions responsible for the credit collapse, just like those who tried to rein in the power of banks after the crash of 29. A key piece of this new regulation was the Volcker Rule. It banned banks from making risky trades with their own capital. So that meant that this big source of revenue that they had for making money by using their own capital to bet on the markets, that was effectively taken away from them. The other thing that happened was that they were allowed to continue trading on behalf of their clients, and they were allowed to make markets. However, that became more expensive for them to do. So because the crisis showed that the price of assets could move up and down really quickly, banks were made to hold more capital against the assets that they did hold on their balance sheet to mitigate the risk. That made some activity expensive and it made some activity 
so expensive it was effectively uneconomic for them to do it. Which meant that the likes of J.P. Morgan, Citi, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley all had to unwind the operations that were no longer fit for purpose. Morgan Stanley had this massive balance sheet which had all these assets on it which were just very difficult to have in the new regulatory environment and in the new market environment. So it meant they had to get a lot smaller in terms of their balance sheet. They sold their physical commodities business. That's one tangible thing that they used to do. The rest of it was largely financial type assets, so derivatives, things that you can't really see in touch and feel, but contracts that would tie up the bank's capital. Before the 08 crisis, Morgan Stanley's assets were more than 30 times its equity. With the help of a $9 billion investment from Japan's MUFG Bank, by 2009, it cut that leverage almost in half. So they had to look at the underlying economics of the businesses. You're making less money in the areas where you traditionally made money. Where are you going to make more money from? What areas can you grow in? What areas can you get into? This is when the paths of Wall Street banks started to diverge. So the real pivotal point that changed the balance was the 2009 joint venture with Smith Barney. Smith Barney was a big wealth management firm. Pre-crisis, Smith Barney was owned by Citigroup. But post-crisis, while Citigroup was struggling to recover, Morgan Stanley swooped in. And if you talk to anybody, that's what they say is the biggest fork in the road because Morgan Stanley did have something. They already had the Dean Witter business. That was a retail brokerage they bought in the late 90s. But buying Smith Barney is really what allowed wealth management to become a sizable piece of the business. Wealth management, advising rich clients on investments and taking fees for this advice. This was a steadier income stream than the much choppier earnings made from the investment bank. And overseeing this business transformation was Chief Executive James Gorman. He joined the bank in 2006 and took the top job in 2010. He's an Australian guy. He's a very smooth but straight-talking guy. He can be very charming. He can also be very direct. So he started off in McKinsey, then he went to Bank of America to their wealth manager, Merrill, then he came into Morgan Stanley. And his job when he came into Morgan Stanley was effectively to fix the wealth management business. And in doing that, he had to effectively make it bigger or he had to kill it. Those were his two options as he sold them. And he ended up becoming CEO and it ended up becoming a lot bigger. Just to give you a sense of that rise, Morgan Stanley's wealth management business did about $17.8 billion in revenue in 2019. That was about 43% of the total Morgan Stanley revenue. And this year, James Gorman doubled down. He made a $13 billion acquisition of online brokerage E-Trade. That was a pivotal move in terms of getting them really deep and really quickly into this online-only market. The average age of their wealth client is about 58, and the average age of their wealth advisor is similar. So one of the issues is, is the next generation of wealthy going to want to do things in the same way? And probably not. So externally, people would see E-Trade as effectively helping to future-proof because it gives you a way to serve people who are used to doing everything online, the kind of digital natives. It gives you a way to serve them better in their own environment. Now, Morgan Stanley would position its bet on E-Trade a little bit differently. They would say it was part of it. what it's about is getting a bridge. Basically, if you start investing with E-Trade when you have tens of thousands to invest and then you ultimately have more, you will then go on to Morgan Stanley. And they're looking at ways to cross brands and looking at ways to kind of 
make it the natural evolution that as you grow your wealth, you go from being an E-Trade client to being a Morgan Stanley client. So I think that the awareness of the potential for this kind of things was always there. I think it's only in the last year or two that it became obvious that a firm like Morgan Stanley would want to move faster. And that the fastest way to do that is to buy somebody who already does it really well. And just as the E-Trade deal closed, Laura reported another acquisition. The next thing they bought is something called Eat Advance. Eat Advance is an investment manager. What that means is that they're the firm that actually comes up with the investment products which are sold. So if you think of them as the people who make the car and then you think of like Morgan Stanley Wealth Management as the people who sell the cars. So Morgan Stanley Wealth Management will still sell cars or still sell investment products from lots of different people. But they believe that the Eat Advance proposition, which goes into Morgan Stanley's existing investment management business, will bring them lots of exciting things that they can sell to their clients. It also firmly places Morgan Stanley among the largest investment managers globally. With Eat Advance in the mix, the bank will have more than $1.2 trillion in assets under management. And there's a real kind of critical mass when you get above the trillion dollar point. So you have a black rock, you know, you've got those kind of investment managers of scale. So if we take Eat Advance and E-Trade together and what they do is they make the business more annuity-like, which means investors can see more clearly what the earnings stream is going to be. Is this something that Morgan Stanley shareholders accept or believe in as well? There is some disgruntlement about the amount that the acquisitions have cost and whether they were too expensive or not. And the Morgan Stanley Executives are quite dismissive of that and say, listen, they paid a good price for good assets. I mean, the frustration of the Morgan Stanley crew is if you look at the share price, they would argue the share price is still trading as if Morgan Stanley is effectively a pure play investment bank rather than trading as if it has these more stable businesses. And if you take that perspective on it and you think that Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, even though they have very different business mixes, they actually trade not that far apart. Morgan Stanley's valuation is a little bit better, but not a whole lot. That suggests that investors do not really accept the logic that Morgan Stanley should now be valued as this stable income stream rather than this more volatile thing that it has previously been. Basically, they're not going to give credit for the bank being changed into something fundamentally different for quite some time. The comparison with Goldman Sachs is an obvious one. They are the two main investment banks on Wall Street. But there's an important distinction to be made here. While Morgan Stanley was transforming itself into a bank with equal parts trading, deal-making, and wealth management, Goldman Sachs took a different route. It's only recently made a push into other areas, like consumer banking. And today, Goldman still relies on its investment bank as a big source of its profits, something investors aren't necessarily excited about. Typically, they seem to have rewarded the Goldman model less. So the Morgan Stanley shares do trade at a higher multiple than Goldman, even though over six of the last 10 years, Goldman's actually posted a better return on equity than Morgan Stanley. It's to do with business mix and the fact that it is generally seen that investment banking slash trading slash gains on assets you hold, those earnings are less highly valued than earnings from wealth management and asset management, which are seen as being more stable. So that's the kind of theoretical underpaying for it. And definitely for the last five years, at least, and maybe longer than that, just the activity of investment banking and trading has been out of favor with investors. And it doesn't seem to matter that it makes an awful lot of money in this environment. People just have a hangover from the crisis and they don't like it. There are scars. There are still very deep scars from what happened with the crisis. And there's the belief that if you make high earnings from this in one quarter, it's kind of like 
nice to have, but it's almost immediately discounted because they see these revenues as being fundamentally very, very volatile. Even when they're not, they see that these revenues could disappear, whereas wealth management, asset management are much more stable recurring businesses. If you have a really strong quarter in those, they factor in future strong quarters. If you have a really strong quarter for trading, they factor in future bad quarters. And that's just how it goes. And that frustrates both Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. So shareholders might not yet be convinced of Morgan Stanley's transformation as a wealth management bank. Meanwhile, both banks, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, reported impressive third quarter profits last week. For Morgan Stanley, it was the second highest quarterly profit the bank had ever posted. So I asked Laura what we should make of this performance against the backdrop of the pandemic and the extended economic downturn. There's always going to be things that are countercyclical and things that do well when the world does badly. So investment banks aren't the only ones having a great time with these days. Like lawyers are getting extra fees, restructuring people, people who manufacture masks. So the way investment banks are structured, they benefit from activity. When you have uncertainty like this, there is more activity. The changes made after the financial crisis, which meant that the banks take less proprietary risk and they don't bet with their own capital, just means that by necessity, they are not going to be hit by the fall in asset values the way they would previously have been. So actually, the financial crisis and the post-crisis reforms insulated banks from the downside of this and does create a world where investment banks are going to significantly outperform the wider economy in a world where there's a lot of trouble and a lot of volatility. That was kind of the idea, that investment banks wouldn't be as vulnerable to the shocks. It's somewhat politically unpalatable and socially unpalatable to find out that actually these people are making a lot of money. And at the end of the day, would it be better for the world if the investment banks were all still taking prop risk, if they were now nursing massive losses, if they were now laying off tens of thousands of their staff, cutting back on their philanthropic giving? You know, would that be better? Probably not. It's important to note that we are still well in the midst of an economic crisis, and it's hard to know exactly how long the trading boom that's helped banks this year will last. If a prolonged recession triggers a wave of defaults and loan losses, that could hit a number of the banks pretty hard. Morgan Stanley has bet that their new business mix offers them resilience. But if there is a prolonged, deep recession with low, possibly even negative interest rates, Wealth managers like Morgan Stanley will be hurt too. And if the world gets too uncertain and too scary, all of those investors who have been rushing to trade stocks and bonds, well, they might decide to wait things out on the sidelines and deprive Wall Street of those booming trading revenues. So it will be a test of whether Morgan Stanley has become a bank that can weather tough times. If you'd like to read more from Laura or the rest of the banking team, check out the show notes for links to a few helpful reads. And if you like this episode, it would mean a lot if you'd subscribe or follow us on your podcast app of choice. If you really liked it, would you leave a review or even tell a friend? And if you want to get in touch directly, you can send us an email to behindthemoney at ft.com or find me on Twitter at Amy P. Keen. Behind the Money is produced by Oluwakemi Eladisui, Reen Turner is our sound engineer, and Liam Nolan is our editor. We'll be back next week.